Ephesians 4, 1 through 28. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But in each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former ways of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in the deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And from there, you and I are urged to live worthy in our moral choices, in our personal habits, in our everyday routines, our friendships, within our church community, at our workplaces, and in our families, both structurally and relationally. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought we were just talking about my spiritual life here. Stay on topic, Paul. I was all for the soaring theology and the prayer tips, but what do you know about my industry and who are you to advise me on parenting? You're single, right? Yeah, thought so. Watch the mansplaining in the Bible there, Paul. 
See, Ephesians chapter 1, it hooks you in, just like the pilot of a new show. Chosen, forgiven, redeemed, filled, empowered, blessed. But chapter 4 makes us squirm a little bit. By the time we get to 5 and 6, some of you might be trying to throw this letter against a wall. And that's primarily because of the American compartmentalization of life. We commonly speak of life in terms like spiritual life, professional life, personal life, sex life. But the ancient Hebrew imagination would have responded to that kind of thinking, huh? All of life is spiritual. How you spend your time, make your money and contribute to society, your family structure, your weekends, what you eat for lunch, where you shop and who you hang out with, what you do with your body and both your understanding of and practice of sexuality, all of that is your spiritual life. See, in the ancient Hebrew mind, compartmentalizing our lives into various spheres is a bit like baking a cake and then having this chocolate cake but taking bites of it, attempting to taste isolated ingredients within each bite. It's to bake a cake and take a bite and say, now I'm just going to savor the egg here. Mmm. Love that. Oh, let's get a flower bite. Oh, I'm going to just... Mmm. The flower. You know, and and the, the Hebrew would say, it doesn't work like that. You've combined all of those ingredients to form one whole that you're tasting. These are all chocolate cake bites. The American compartmentalization of life has its roots in the philosopher Rene Descartes, who popularized the idea of dualism, a divide between mind and matter. Dualism was not a new idea, though. It was just new terminology he laid on top of a really old idea. All the way back in the first century, Gnosticism crept into the early church, which was a philosophical divide between the spiritual and material world, between mind and matter. And a Gnostic understanding of life would include things like a spiritual life, a professional life, a personal life, and a, sexual, and a sex life. That is a common way of thinking today, but it's also the very thinking that so many of the New Testament letters are aimed directly at combating against. C.S. Lewis called Christianity the most materialistic of all religions. In other words, if your spirituality isn't getting expressed in the environments of your everyday, you have come up with a different story than the, ones we, the one we find on the pages of Scripture. The biblical story is one that gets worked out and expressed in the material world, and it permeates every area of our lives. To live as a disciple of Jesus means to eat meals, budget, go to work, raise children, hang out with friends, make weekend plans, and do it all marching to the beat of a different king in the procession of another kingdom. Leslie Newbegin famously said, live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So when people observe your habits at work, or the way that you parent, the way that you date, or interact with your spouse, the way that you use your money, is it provoking questions for which the only possible response is Jesus? Or is it blending in, effortlessly camouflaging into the common culture that exists all around us? And what does it even mean to raise kids or budget to give a presentation or build an app or re-roof a house or bust tables in such a way that wouldn't make sense apart from the existence of God? That is precisely what the second half of the letter of Ephesians is all about. 
So we're in the midst of this teaching series, Ephesians, immeasurably more. We've dedicated the whole of the summer to going through the New Testament letter of Ephesians verse by verse. Last week, we turned a corner. Remember, Ephesians is a letter that's best understood in two parts. Part one, in the stars. Part two, in the dirt. So in the stars, part one is cosmic and it's soaring. It is rich in true theology that forms our imaginations. Part two, in the dirt, the day-to-day environments where that story gets worked out and expressed. In the middle is a prayer, holding the whole thing together like the binding of a book. We are now officially in part two. Welcome to the dirt. Chapter four opens by introducing a theme that will get wrung out for all it's worth. The theme goes something like this. The indwelling power of the Holy Spirit has come to rest in ordinary communities of ordinary people. In other words, the whole first half of this letter is now alive within you and within us. And that theme then gets explored in various environments, Uh, in the individual soul, the choices that we make, our morality, our habits. It's all the outward expressions of of identity being rewritten in someone from the inside out. And then the relational environments that we go about inhabiting, uh, our church, our home, our workplace. And we're going to continue to not leave a single verse in the letter unturned, uh, but for the sake of clarity, we do need to focus in more thematically in the second half of Ephesians than we did in the first. And because in the last year we have looked in depth at the person, presence, and power of the Spirit within a local church community like this one, that would be through our demonstrating the gospel practice and teaching series back in the fall, our Holy Spirit conference, uh, through the various prayer trainings we've held throughout the year, all of which are available online, by the way, if you want those resources. But because we've done such a deep dive in that regard, we're going to spend the remainder of the summer zeroing in on the other environments where the God-breathed life gets worked out. We're gonna get into holiness, into the home, into the armor of God. But up for today, we're gonna tackle Paul's most brief and most surprising reference for where our calling is expressed and matured, the workplace. And by work, I'm not necessarily referring to your job, though it certainly could be that. I'm referring to your vocation, which comes from the Latin vocatio, meaning calling, whatever you do to produce good in the world. And within this community, there are working professionals and stay-at-home parents. There's part-time employees, the retired and the unemployed. There are students, and there's people working three jobs just to make ends meet. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, addresses all of those people in one fell swoop. And I'm going to do the same. Because it actually does not matter if you're a VP at Nike or if you're unemployed and desperately looking or if you're part-time and you're just grabbing shifts wherever you can from a temp agency. Every last one of us has been endowed in those very circumstances that we might choose or never choose to live a God-given vocation, a way available to us in our working environments to contribute and to produce good in the world. Now, I'm going to move pretty fast today. I might suggest jotting a note or two. I'm going to level with you. What I'm about to offer you is above average. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, uh, the very last verse in the teaching text that was read a moment ago. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Now, historically speaking, some scholars speculate that there were some Ephesian believers who had lost their job because of placing their trust in Jesus. The kingdom of God in Ephesus, more than any other New Testament city, had known economic implications on the city, so it would make sense that those within the church then had known economic implications placed on them. And if that was you, and you had hungry kids at home, then theft would be a very appealing option and easily justifiable. But it's also possible that some Ephesian believers were shopkeepers that were cheating their customers and their employees. That kind of thing was a whole lot more common in the ancient world where regulations were light but class lines were very thick. It was much easier then to use power and privilege to pay someone an unfair wage or to charge someone an unfair cost for a good. And so Paul insists in Ephesians chapter 4 and then he insists again in chapter 6 that Jesus redefines vocation how we think about it, how we relate to it, how we practice it. And you'll find that same sort of thing, not just here, it's in Acts chapter 20, it's in both of the letters to the Thessalonians, it's in Galatians and it's in Colossians. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul, the pastor, is exhorting the church, work hard, become self-sustaining so that you're not entirely dependent on others and find a job and avoid getting caught up in the workplace drama when you do and earn a reputation in that place for integrity and respect. You see, Paul seems to think that how you think about your work is an equally vital environment for your discipleship to Jesus as is the gathered church or the table or the prayer room. Is that how you think about your discipleship to Jesus. Now Ephesians is gonna speak with clarity as to why Paul thinks that way. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Jump down then to verse 23. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now the English words in these verses, thinking and minds, are actually the same ancient Greek word which can be translated as mind, thinking, or understanding. This is a word not used for morality, but for imagination. The word here is for a renewed person, for a committed follower of Jesus, whose imagination is unknowingly stuck in a fallen paradigm. It's not someone who needs to be convicted and confess, it's someone whose eyes need to be opened, someone whose understanding needs to be unlocked, someone who follows Jesus but has never understood the connections between apprenticeship to Jesus and their workday, someone whose spiritual, personal, emotional, and communal imagination is shaped by Jesus, but their professional or vocational imagination is shaped by modern Western culture. See, many of us, we have an understanding of our vocation, be it consulting, teaching, parenting, or, or bartending, that was handed us by 21st century American culture, not by Jesus. And if you keep the door to your vocational life shut, God probably won't open it. He's incomprehensibly powerful, but he's also gentle. And in my experience, and also what I see on the pages of Scripture, is that God works primarily by invitation and by consent. And so if, if we wall off a part of our lives, God will usually reluctantly allow it. But you're missing out. 
because his every motive is for life and life to the full. So if we are to know the empowering presence of God in the daily grind of the nine to five, like the Ephesian believers, we might need to have our eyes open, our understanding unlocked, a paradigm of vocation offered us by Jesus and not by the waters that we swim in. Dr. Gerald Sitzer says, if the Christian faith is going to have any kind of impact at all, it must address how believers live in the secular world. Ordinary people must learn to live as disciples of Jesus when they are not at church. Perhaps we need a new category of saint, a secular saint who lives passionately for Christ while serving as a banker or teacher or construction worker or artist. And so to that end, let's open our eyes to the vocational vision offered us by Jesus, first as a story and then as a definition. So first, I want to give you the vocational story, which does arrive in Exodus, but it starts all the way back in Genesis. On the pages of the Bible, God is first introduced to us as a worker, a maker, a creator. In the beginning, God went to work, says Genesis 1. That's my paraphrase, at least. And it was a six-day work week, concluding with a glorious day of rest called Sabbath. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced to man and woman along the same lines as workers who are employed and empowered by God to work within his work to participate creatively in his making. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Among the consequences of the fall, though, was the corruption of work. The creative, participatory labor that delighted humanity in Genesis chapter 2 is corrupted by deception in Genesis chapter 3. But God's redemption is all-encompassing, and so from the very beginning, that includes the redemption of our work, of our labor. In the Bible's second book, Exodus, we are introduced to a character named Bezalel. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for the work of gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So on the surface, Bezalel is the architect and designer of the original temple. He drew up the blueprints for the house that God was going to live in. That's what this is about on the surface. But check this out. He was filled with the Spirit of God for this work. This is the first time on the pages of Scripture that anyone has been described that way. So the first time in biblical history anyone was said to be filled with the Spirit of God, it wasn't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, or Moses. It was Bezalel. And the first time someone was filled with the Spirit of God, it wasn't to deliver a word of prophecy, to part a sea, to work a miracle of healing, or to pray a particularly powerful prayer. It was for work, white-collar work, like architecture and design, and blue-collar work, like construction, setting stones, and working with wood. This brings us to David. When it's time to appoint a successor to Israel's first king, God sends the prophet Samuel to the village of Bethlehem where he has the successor waiting. Jesse then parades his six impressive sons in front of Samuel. They were obviously the the best candidates, but to Samuel's surprise, God speaks to him about none of them. So he says something like, you sure you don't have any more kids? And Jesse says, well, there is the youngest. 
he is tending the sheep. Now, our English Bibles translate this very politely, but the Hebrew term that was used here is not youngest. It is hakaton, which is defined as small, young, or unimportant. It was a derogatory way of referring to David. The closest thing we have in English today is probably baby brother. Right? Well, there's the baby brother. He's out taking care of the sheep, which also happened to be the least demanding job on the farm. There's the unimpressive one. He's doing the unimpressive thing. Then to everyone's surprise, David is anointed by the prophet as Israel's future king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. There it is again. The same spirit that filled Bezalel now fills David, another worker, going about his day job. And it's important to note that he did not anoint David as a call to the ministry. And there's plenty of priests in the ancient world at this time. David never joined that band. He never became one of them. He was anointed with a call to a political office to go about a socioeconomic work for the common good of a city. So here's what I find really interesting. It's that the temple is the active center of the redemption story throughout the Old Testament, just like the church is today. It was the primary place of worship and prayer and forgiveness and community. And the priests were the common narrators of the redemption story, just like pastors are today, right? Preaching sermons and leading prayer meetings and gathering community together and writing curriculums. And yet, and this is the interesting bit, all of the action of that redemption story it's almost never centered on the temple. It's among the common people, not the priests. And it's in the common environments. It's in the workplace. That's where the kingdom action happens, biblically speaking. It's Joseph as the executive assistant to Potiphar and then as the chief staff advisor to Pharaoh. It's, it's Moses, a shepherd, who's showing up in the field again today after 40 years punching the clock, and then he sees a bush burning. It's Ruth, a single woman in a patriarchal society trying to take care of an aging mother-in-law, trying to make ends meet again today on the farm. It's Esther in City Hall of an occupied empire. It's Nehemiah climbing the ranks of the Babylonian executive center. It's David, a shepherd passing his days in the field, and then a musician booking gigs at the palace, and, and then a king overseeing the executive team. These are the environments where all the kingdom action happens. It is not my world of sermons and small groups and prayer meetings. It is your world. Do you hear me? Your world is where the kingdom comes. It's the office, the co-working space. It's the school drop-off and pick-up. It is the restaurant kitchen, the studio. Martin Luther went so far as to write, the menial housework of a manservant or maidservant is more acceptable to God than the work of monks or priests. This brings us to Jesus. When Jesus showed up in a synagogue in Nazareth to announce the beginning of his ministry, he borrows the old Samuel David language. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now, Jesus is saying this in Nazareth. That's where he grew up. For 30 years, Jesus was known as the assistant at his dad's carpentry business. He was doing the menial work in the back office where pops hired him. So when he stood up in a synagogue to let everyone know that he was the king, the forever king, the Messiah in the line of David, he was doing so in front of people who only ever knew him as the shop assistant. David comes out of the sheep field. 
Jesus comes out of the carpenter's shop. What does it tell us about God, about the creator, the maker, that he willingly chose to spend 30 of his 33 years doing ordinary work among ordinary people in an ordinary place? How might it dignify your work in the secular world to know that God chose to inhabit work in the secular world? And I'm not actually only talking about something that stopped when Jesus announced his ministry. When Jesus went around telling what the kingdom of God was like, all of his parables but one take place in the secular world, not in the sacred world of the temple. And the primary setting for Jesus' ministry, read the pages of the Gospels, it wasn't the temple. I mean, sure, he did teach there regularly, but the kingdom action happened on the fishing boat and at the tax collector's booth and in the leper colony and around the dinner table and on the commute between Samaria and Jerusalem. Again, it is your world where the kingdom comes. It is your life where the action happens. All this reaches ahead at Pentecost when all were filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit that filled Bezalel, the Spirit that anointed David, the Spirit that anointed Jesus now comes to rest on every man and woman, senior and child, who accepts Jesus Christ as Lord. The priesthood of all believers is the tagline that got slapped on it later. Ephesus, finally, we read this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Don't miss the full story. Don't compartmentalize what God never has. Don't spiritualize certain environments and despiritualize others. And it would be easy for us to nod our heads in agreement at that sentiment. But tomorrow is Monday morning. Do you enter your vocational environment on a Monday morning with the same sense of spiritual expectation? that you bring to a sacred environment on a Sunday morning? Or, like the Ephesians, might you be lost in the futility of your compartmentalized thinking? And the only reason that I ask that is because God seldom enters any area of our lives uninvited. He is powerful, but he is gentle. He is mighty. And he is meek. But maybe you're sitting there just thinking, how presumptuous. How on earth can Scripture possibly speak in one blanket statement about work to so many different cultures and so many different peoples and so many different ways of thinking and so many ways of interacting with work? So I want you to know that Scripture does not tell us specifically how to fill the roles of our vocational lives. It leaves room for creativity there. What Scripture does tell us is to replace our understanding of our vocational lives as culturally defined with those same vocational roles as Christ defined. Scripture instructs us to do something like prayerfully ask the question, how would Jesus go about my work if he were in my place? I heard the story of a local mother of five who wrestled with guilt because she took Jesus' teachings on proximity to the poor really seriously. And she would ask herself questions like, you know, if Jesus was in Portland today, surely he would be found at the street corner uh, among the houseless and with the addicted, right? And I have to say, as a pastor, I agree with that sentiment, generally speaking. I certainly think that that is where Jesus could and would be found. 
But she also struggled because working the line at the soup kitchen just seemed impossible for her because she was working the line in her own kitchen, feeding five children. And then one day it just hit her that her own kids, they're always needing something. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I spilled my juice. I need help going to the bathroom. I'm bored. Play with me. They were helpless without her. They were needy. And so she began to recognize the face of Jesus, not in the stranger, but in the familiar faces of her own five crazy little ones. And she began to treat them as Jesus treated the vulnerable on the pages of the Gospels. And she heard Jesus say to her, not in some extraordinary environment she ventured off to, but in the common environment that she occupied day in and day out in her workplace. She heard Jesus speaking to her through the voices of her children. When was I thirsty and you offered me a cup to drink? When was I lonely and you comforted me? When was I naked and you clothed me? When was I lost and you invited me in? See, that mom, she had to overcome the lie that spirituality happens in environments other than her most common one. And it was then that she discovered vocation, not by changing what she was doing, but by changing how she was doing what she was already doing. Finding that God was not beyond her every day, but right within her every day. This was not a new work to do. It was a new way to do the work she was already doing. See, everything we do, even the most menial common task, I'm talking about things like laundry and cooking and running errands and paying bills and going to work, they can become holy activities. If we prayerfully invite God into them, if we open our eyes to the people that they affect, if we find the most redemptive aspect of them and lean with all of our weight into that. Brother Lawrence, in his classic, The Practice of the Presence of God, said, our sanctification does not depend on changing our works, but in doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. This is a Christ-defined way to be a mom, to be an executive, to be a restaurant server or a general contractor or a receptionist. Richard Foster writes, he is, you see, the Lord of all vocations, and he really can teach us how to fulfill our calling. If you are a dentist, Jesus can teach you to do dentistry as he would do it if he were you. The same is true if you're a court stenographer, a computer programmer, a research scientist, a janitor, or the CEO of a multinational corporation. It is just as true if the thing you do to produce good in the world is to raise a family, or paint pictures, or create stained glass windows, or peel potatoes. Whoever, whatever, wherever, he will teach you. Learn from him. That, friends, is the vocational story that we're given in Scripture. And so now that we have the, the major themes and movements of the vocational story, we can at least make an attempt at something of a vocational definition. Now again, I just want to remind you that when I say vocation, I might be talking about your job, but I'm talking about something bigger than that. I'm talking about what you do to produce good in the world, how you are uniquely equipped in the common environments of your everyday life with your limitations, your personality, your skill set to contribute to redemption. So I want to offer a suggestion of a biblical definition of vocation based on that story. I'm going to give it to you in three words. They all begin with C. You're welcome. <laughs> Creativity, compassion, and calling. Vocation, biblically speaking, essentially includes these three. First, creativity. The work that God both does and shares with humanity on, Bible, on the Bible's opening chapters, it is explicitly creative work. 
The Quaker author Parker Palmer, he defines a distinction between work and creativity. Work is action driven by an external necessity or demand. We work because we need to make a living, because we need to solve a problem, because we need to surmount or survive. Creativity, in contrast, is driven more by inner choice than outer demand. An act cannot be creative if it is not born out of freedom. In creative action, our desire is not to solve or succeed or survive, but to give birth to something new. We want for a while to be a little less creaturely and a little more like the creative or the creator. So work is an instrumental action. We do it as a means to an end. We work for a result, for rent money, or for uh, our boss's demand or approval, or for our own livelihood or health. Uh, creativity is an expressed action. We do it regardless of the result because we, we're creative from a place of conviction. It's from the belief that the recipient is worth this labor, from the belief that this labor produces good in the world around me, from a deep desire to bring something into being. Jesus becomes a living picture of the creative work of God in an upside down way that we would never see coming. He is a king who serves. King Jesus, the one anointed to rule and reign over creation, disguised as a peasant serving in the common menial tasks. And on the final night of his life, Jesus commissioned us to take on that identity as our own and go and do likewise. Luke 24, the kings of the Gentiles, there it is again, the futility of their thinking. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. See, Jesus seems to be acknowledging that there is a battle going on for your vocational imagination. So do not just conduct yourself the way the world does. Do not carry yourself around your office puffed up in the vocational identity that you are given by your workplace, that maybe even you're told you need to hold in order to keep the lines clear. Go about your work as one with the authority to rule over creation, but do so by getting on your hands and knees like a servant. That's how we recover the work that we were given at first in Genesis 1 that we lost in the fall but has been restored to us in Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are filled with his spirit. So go about your work, your ordinary day-to-day work as a participant in redemption, as a co-creator. How? Take the position of a servant. What might that mean for you in your vocational environment? So vocation involves creativity and also involves compassion. According to a 2010 study conducted by CNN, worker satisfaction in the U.S. today is at an all-time low, with less than 50% of people in this country saying that they're satisfied with their jobs. Simultaneous to that, work-induced depression is at an all-time high, with one of every six clinically diagnosed cases of depression being attributed to a lack of satisfaction in the workplace. Now, these are just some of the most obvious symptoms of pursuing work based on ambition rather than on compassion. A deep sense of fulfillment and satisfaction is not found when we pursue it directly. It was the psychologist Viktor Frankl who first said, the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself never ends in pleasure. According to Jesus, fulfillment is the reward of giving your life away. 
To feel a sense of personal satisfaction and fulfillment is not the reward of going after that fulfillment, it's the reward of going after a life of compassion that is devoted to others. Stewarding privilege, using what I've been given on behalf of others, the, the call to compassion, it is the antidote to what ails so many of us in our vocations. This is why in Ephesians 4.28, it says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. The call is not stop stealing because that's wrong. The call is the thief should become the philanthropist. It is the conversion of self-centeredness, whether that self-centeredness be ambition, oppression, workaholism, workplace manipulation, resume fudging, or outright theft, to convert self-centeredness into every variety of compassion. And every vocation has outlets for compassion within it, every last one. Every vocation has within it a relational component. And that, the love of people, is where the stories are waiting. It's where the stories are waiting that you will tell when you're old. And it's where the stories are waiting that will break your heart. Because loving people is not predictable. But it is worth it. While working at a car dealership in Florida, my dad hired this guy named Jason to work in the parts, de- the parts department. And just a couple of months into that new job, Jason's apartment was raided by the police and both he and his roommate were arrested uh, for drug uh, possession and distribution. And what my dad didn't know about this point, but we'll find out later, is that Jason had a cocaine habit that he had been nursing for years, that he had started dealing to pay for that habit, and that had cost him everything. He, it led to the breakdown of his marriage, lost relationship with his son. He ran from Charlotte, North Carolina because he was constantly under the pursuit of the authorities to start over again in Florida, but just kind of picked up exactly where he'd left off. So after a short 30-day prison sentence, he's released. He calls my dad, who was his boss, to see if he might, by some miracle, still have a job waiting on him when he gets out. And my dad says, why don't you meet me tomorrow morning at 7.30 at this diner that was next to the dealership. So they're sitting down there at 7.30 in the morning. Now for my dad, this is just an early start to an otherwise routine work day. And he's looking at this guy, Jason, who just spent his first night in a bed other than a prison cot uh, for the first time in over a month. And they begin to talk about how to politely and quietly terminate his employment. And then to my father's utter surprise, he began to just wonder if God might be involved in this moment. Now he's looking at what to him was the least likely candidate for discipleship to Jesus, but he didn't say no for Jason. He decided to follow this little nudge, and so he ends up sharing his story, which actually has some themes of substance abuse written within his own past, and uh, Jason then uh, breaks into this conversation, the breakfast goes longer than they expected, and he prays to receive Jesus in this diner on that morning. Fast forward 15 years later, this is a picture of Jason and my dad that was taken this week. Jason still works with my dad at a car dealership. Today, Jason is married, he has three daughters, he has repaired his relationship with his ex-wife and his son. He follows Jesus with everything that he's got. My dad still mentors him to this day. It was a few years after that first meeting that my parents relocated to South Carolina, at which point Jason relocated to South Carolina. (laughs) With all seriousness, it's because this relationship is that important to him. I see Jason every single time I visit my folks. And you know, one day my dad's gonna stand before Jesus. 
And Jesus is going to ask him about what he did with, you, with what he was entrusted. And I bet when he and Jesus get to March of 2007, Jesus will not be asking him about profit margins or you know, management or all the things that were occupying so much of his time. He will ask him about Jason, about were you present with and loving Jason when you sat with him at that diner. But in order for my father to inherit that story, he first had to overcome the social norm that is dividing my private and professional life. And he had to overcome the temptation to set his own thirst for results and ambition and, and company growth and upward mobility and promotion and resources and retirement. He had to set all of that aside in order to be present to what God was doing in a moment of compassion with this one man. You see, lesser loves, they so frequently inhabit our imaginations in the workplace, blinding us to the kingdom invitations that are waiting for us in the common environments where the kingdom always comes. The New York Times uh, columnist and author David Brooks talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. He says, you know, resume virtues are those ones that will be in your portfolio and your business acumen. They speak of your accomplishments. But eulogy virtues, that's what people are going to say about you at your funeral. And one of the great tragedies of the human race is that while given a moment of honest reflection, every last one of us would say eulogy virtues are far more important than resume virtues. Equally, nearly every last one of us spends most of our lives working far harder on our resume virtues than we do on our eulogy. And over the course of my life, I've seen my dad work at six different car dealerships. And at every single one, every single one, He's led a few coworkers to Christ, and I've watched him have some weekday morning when he's sitting with a few of them, discipling them, talking to them about Jesus on a Tuesday morning before work. And he's got a pretty solid resume. I've seen him let go, and I've seen him promoted. His resume's fine, but the eulogy he's crafting is breathtaking. Life is about relationship. And it actually is that simple. On your deathbed, you will not be thinking back to accomplishments, projects, plans, approval from a boss. You will think about relationship. You will think about the people that you got to spend your number days alongside. And you will think with gratitude or with regret about how much you did or didn't give your whole self to them in love and compassion. So build a eulogy. This is vocational work. It is creativity. It is compassion. And then lastly, it is calling. Calling is that elusive, ever sought after three-way intersection between need, competency, and joy. Frederick Buechner defines vocation as the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. To discover calling begins with the recognition of a need. There's some felt need in the world. It's anything from a socioeconomic concern to a business innovation. And then, of course, and many of us fail to take this bit into account, uh, you must be competently gifted in partnership with the Holy Spirit to address that need in a meaningful way. And then finally, there's no vocation that avoids duty altogether. There's parts of every job you don't really love. But there should be joy in competently addressing this need for you. 
So if we can define calling, if we can just name language like I just did to say what it is, what makes it so elusive to find? Why is calling so much easier to define than it is to discover? Well, at least in American culture, without a doubt, it's because of self-gratification. Because the environments where we work out our vocation, they tend to be ones of subtle but very real competition, uh, competing for position or power or attention with the other counterparts at my office, or just that subtle nagging sense of competition between me and this one other mom at the park. Uh, the, the American, someone laughed, when that was the spirit of the Lord. Did you feel it? <laughs> I don't want to point anyone out, but there is an angsty mom in here. I'm just kidding. I'm just being really serious, and we need some comic relief. Let's keep moving. The American drive, with all sincerity, is built on a competitive spirit, which turns our focus inward. It turns me in on myself. Self-centeredness is a search for self-gratification that drains all of our work of its power. It drains work of its power, both to fulfill us and to participate in the redemption of the world. I love, uh, in Parker Palmer's book, The Active Life, he uses the Tao poet Cheng Su's poem, The Woodcarver, to illustrate this. Now, in this poem, the worker who's a woodcarver has produced a piece of art so beautiful that the prince of the village himself has come to ask him his secret. King, that's the name of the woodcarver, replied, I'm only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit. I did not expend it on trifles that were not to the point. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism. Commenting on this work of poetry, Palmer says, the key to the woodcarver's contemplation is that it enabled him to forget and therefore abstain from all sorts of psychic junk food, gain and success, praise and criticism. What are the junk foods in your vocational environment? What in your vocational environment is so tempting and tasty to indulge in, but has no nutritional value to the soul, produces no good within you, it can't be repurposed into energy that's given away to the world? Have you ever thought about that? What might it mean to identify those junk foods and intentionally build a life abstaining from them? And how might that free you, not just to work, but to receive a calling? Calling is discovered through a certain type of engagement and through a certain type of resistance. So we'll land here today. Jeremiah Everts was a Yale-educated lawyer living in the early 19th century. Now, at that same time and place, there happened to be something of a historic awakening sweep through the American church, particularly in the Northeast. He got caught up in that awakening, met Jesus, had his whole life rewritten. And so he dedicated the final 15 years of his life to defending the rights of the Cherokee tribe of Native Americans. He used his uh, acumen as a lawyer to mount a public defense against the forcible removal of the Cherokees from the state of Georgia. He published 24 essays advocating on that subject. He made a legal argument that was based on the US Constitution and law, but he also wrote some essays making a, an appeal to the human spirit using the scriptures as his basis. 
He lobbied at both the White House and at Congress. He personally appealed in meetings to President John Adams and President Andrew Jackson. He held individual meetings with countless individual Congress members. He had a job, attorney, and he was good at it. He was successful. But what he found when he let Jesus into his vocational environment was a vocation. It was a way to practice law that joined the redemptive work of God, and it was fueled by creativity and compassion and calling, and eventually, Everett's lost. But he didn't give up. He appealed to the Supreme Court. Denied. The Cherokee tribe was forcibly removed from the state of Georgia and made to march on foot all the way to Oklahoma. There was a mass loss of life on the way and an even greater loss of life upon arrival. We know that today as the Trail of Tears. Jeremiah Everts failed. He tried to use his legal profession to address the needs of the Cherokee people. He saw them as children made in the image of a loving creator, and he devoted his life to advocating for them. He bore every professional and social cost that came along with dedicating his legal career to that, and he failed. My friend uh, Pete Portal is the pastor of a small community in a particularly rough part of Cape Town, South Africa. And he tells this story uh, about this meeting he had with some potential donors. Now, they were, they were desperate for cash just to continue the day-to-day ordinary operating procedures of the church because they minister to drug addicts who are trying to get clean and to gang members who are trying to get out of gang life and start fresh somewhere else. Now, they are a church. They have Sunday services and small groups and all that kind of stuff, but they also have a rehab house where these folks live, where they receive care, form community, embrace discipleship to Jesus, and walk toward a new life. So Pete's sitting in this pretty swanky cafe across from these wealthy potential donors trying to make the best possible case he can of why they should direct their funds toward the thing that he's doing. And then one of them says, what's your success rate? Like, what percentage of the people that first come into your rehab house now are living clean and following Jesus today? What's your success rate? It's a fair question. It's also the very question that Pete has no idea how to answer. Because working with addicts is messy, unpredictable work. I mean, it's always one step forward and two steps back. And sometimes you journey with an individual for five years, and then it just takes one moment of weakness, and they've spiraled back into the darkest corner of the place that you first found them. So Pete's trying to come up with an honest answer to this question in this meeting with these donors, but there's just a silence hanging as his mind is running. And the silence is hanging heavy and awkwardly over the table. And then Sarah, Pete's wife, speaks up and says, oh, we're 100% successful. God never called us to get people off drugs. Only he can do that. What God called us to is to answer the door at one in the morning when another addict shows up desperately looking for somewhere to call home. And to do our best to sacrificially love them and to believe in them and to help them and to forgive them when they take advantage of us and when they steal from us and to keep on loving them through thick and thin without keeping record of wrong, to teach them about Jesus and the joy of walking with him, to pray for them relentlessly and to welcome every stranger in like their family. So for what Jesus has asked us to do, we've been 100% successful. Jeremiah Everts failed. 
And that's why we don't know his name today alongside the names of the other warriors for justice in our history like Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and William Wilberforce. But what is his legacy in the eyes of Jesus? And how will we know his name in the kingdom that comes forever and will outlast all the others? How will the coming kingdom redefine everything we think about success stories? See, if you want to know more than work but vocation, you have to overcome at least these two things, the temptation to compartmentalize your life and the definition of success that was handed to you by someone other than Jesus. What is success for me as a pastor? Is it more attendance, a bigger budget, uh, increase in live stream viewers and a larger platform? How will Jesus redefine what success looks like for his church when he returns as king? What if it's Tyler, you loved this one person and you loved them consistently and you loved them when it was hard, when they disappointed you, when they let you down, when they hurt you, you kept loving them when love became a choice and not an instinct. And you prayed secret hidden labor, ushering in the kingdom come when no one else was looking. And you resisted diluting my teachings when diluting them would have won you applause, but holding to them won you criticism. You ran the race with endurance, staying in and continuing on when it was joy and when it was agony, when you could not believe the privilege and when you had hit the wall, you died to yourself so other people could come alive. And what might Jesus define as success for you vocationally? What if success in Jesus' name requires that you decompartmentalize your life from the very comfortable boxes you've got it all put away in? What if it requires that you put to death, that you nail to the cross in the language of the Bible a definition of success that was borrowed from a lesser king? And what if there on the other side of that death, there's a kind of life that never dies, there's a resurrection kind of life, there's a way for you to live vocationally right now in the ordinary labor of your ordinary days that weaves something into the tapestry of eternal redemption. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. <laughs>